Support for WPR comes from Stone Harbor, a Door County Resort and Conference Center overlooking the historic steel bridge in Sturgeon Bay. Details about hosting a wedding or conference are at stoneharbor-resort.com. Support for WPR comes from Ulbrich Botanical Gardens, home to 16 acres of Midwest Hardy Display Gardens, located at 3330 Atwood Avenue in Madison. Open daily from 10 to 6. Ulbrich.org. As truly as God is our Father, so truly is God our Mother. Julian of Norwich wrote those radical words 600 years ago. I'm Emily Auerbach, and this is University of the Year. Born in the 14th century, Julian of Norwich was a revolutionary medieval mystic, the first woman known to have penned a book in English. What is real and what is myth about her unusual life? What kept her from being punished as a heretic? How has she been rediscovered in our own times? Joining me to explore Julian of Norwich is Sherry Reams, Professor Emerita of English from the UW-Madison and the author of Middle English Legends of Women Saints. Welcome to University of the Air. Thank you. Juliana Norwich, uh, when I started reading about her, it seems even her name is a question mark. That's right. That's right. We don't know what her birth name was or her baptismal name. Um, When she became a recluse, um, she entered the church of St. Julian Conisford in Norwich and took the church's name. It was St. Julian, a male saint, which is how she happens to have a male name. And we know nothing about her life, nothing for certain about her life before that, except that we can put together some dates. Um, Her books, she has a short one and a longer one, the longer one being later, and they both report a series of amazing visions that she had uh, in May 1373 when she tells us she was 30 and a half years old. She's very precise about that. (laughs) It is precise. Yeah. And there's probably something symbolic about the 30 and a half. But that puts her almost exactly in the same chronology as Chaucer. She might be a few years older or a few years younger than Chaucer. Where exactly is Norwich? Norwich is in East Anglia. It's almost on the coast. In fact, it's kind of in the Fen country, and you can you can get into um, canals and rivers up there and go along very slowly in river boats between the reeds and get to the sea. And this would be a time when presumably the plague was everywhere? It's later. It's later. And Norwich, actually, if you were going to live in 14th century England, which most of us would not want to do. (laughs) Norwich wasn't a bad place. This was a very prosperous county. Uh, It was big on the sheep raising and wool making industries. And there are huge medieval churches remaining in Norwich, built by very prosperous, obviously, lay people, sort of dotting the countryside all over. And Norwich is the capital of Norfolk, which is actually the the, the province. I guess one thing I was wondering about is if she's a first, the first woman known to have written a book in English, why isn't she better known? Huh. That seems like a big yes. first. To me. Yes, it is a big first. Um, she was, when I was in an English PhD program in the 1960s, there were no women writers before Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. 
And part of the problem was that literature had been very narrowly defined as poetry, novels, um, you know, very creative um, works, especially with lots of wordplay. John Donne was in, T.S. Eliot was in, and Julian had the disadvantage of having written in prose, religious prose, moreover, and what could be, you know, less cool than that. And also, her work had mostly been forgotten over the centuries. And so the manuscripts that exist for what she wrote, um, are they something from later on or the actual yes. originals? Yeah, they're all later. They're all later. So yeah. all we actually know about Julian is that she was attached to this church. Yeah. And that there's some manuscripts that have that say they're her writing. Yeah. Do we know yeah. anything about her family background, social no. class? No. What we do have, we can infer some things from the fact that she was an anchorite in this church. In order to be an anchorite. And define that. Okay. It was like a recluse only since women weren't considered safe to be out in the country in a hermitage, it's a protected recluse. And what happened, it was a, there was actually a liturgy that went with it. This was a very standard thing for women, usually older women, and women with a certain religious status, women who were taken seriously both for their basic wisdom and sanity and also for their maturity. It was something that they could become, and a recluse had to be approved by the bishop. And when, every, when all the paperwork was signed or everything was agreed on, she, there would actually be a liturgy of burial. And she would go into the cell, the little, little hermitage or anchor hold att attached to a church, and she would be walled in for the rest of her life. That was the idea. It sounds like living death to mm -hmm. us, but in fact, it was a great opportunity for a certain kind of medieval woman. Well, sure, because it's yeah. a room of her own. It's a room of her <laughs> own, a place where she could read and write in peace, mostly peace. Um, it did have windows. It had to. She would have perished of starvation. Mm -hmm. There was one window that opened to the church so she could see what was going on at the altar and presumably receive the Eucharist and confess her sins, if you couldn't confess any sins living in an anchor hold, I suppose you could. You mouth, your thoughts, yes, Your maybe. thoughts, yeah. And another window opened to the street outside, through which um, when she drew aside the curtain or the, the shutters, whatever, she could receive food and other necessities. And I think recluses always had to have servants or at least some local person who would look after their needs and bring them what they needed. Well, how'd they get exercise? They did not apparently. Exercise, I mean, it was it was a tiny little room, presumably. And they didn't even but, go out in some courtyard? No, or no, there was no nothing. courtyard. Just it, to us, it would not be healthy at all. Medieval people were very ambivalent, I think, about exercise, probably especially for women. And, you know, they also didn't take baths, so they did not have our, our notions about how you keep your body healthy. And but she survived a long time. We know mm -hmm. that she went into the anchor hold in by 1393 or 1394, because there are references to her there in wills, and she was still there in 1416. So she outlived Chaucer by at least 16 years, hmm. and 
you know, if it was bad for her health, it didn't show up. <laughs> and is it somewhat related to being a nun? Um, probably. A I mean, nun it, lives is, in community yeah. under supervision. And it's only when a, a nun or a monk is considered capable of thriving on their own without supervision and actually um, living in a sort of hermitage that they are allowed to do that. And it seems quite likely that in her earlier life she may have been a nun. But because, an anchorite yeah. would be a step up yes. then from a nun. Yeah, a a allowed more, more freedom, more independence, strangely. Not of movement, but nuns didn't move out either. Nuns were enclosed. And so through the window, did people come to her for counsel then? Yes. To, yes. Yeah, people could come to her for counsel. We know that Marjorie Kemp did. Marjorie Kemp is the other famous woman from Norwich who wrote, or in her case, dictated a book about in this same period. And if you were an anchorite and you were in this little room, you know, walled in, in effect, what was your intended purpose? I mean, what, what was, why was that thought yeah. to be a good life? Um, I think it was a further intensification of the um, vocation of prayer, that you did not have to have your window open to the lane and be receiving, you know, visitors and people who mm -hmm. wanted counseling on family problems or whatever. You could spend many hours a day in, in reading, in prayer, in meditation, and in Julian's case, writing. Mm-hmm. Because I know some of the monks would be copying manuscripts yeah. and you yeah. know, engaged in yeah. activities. Yeah, and... that was usually – well, nuns did too. Nuns mm -hmm. had scriptoria in their convents also, and they produced most of the books that were used probably on an everyday basis, including the, the uh, manuscripts that were used in the church services, which were very fancy. And so what would be important to know about that time period, you know, prior to her being sort of walled in there or during the time that she was, what was happening outside her? That's, that's, that's a good question. Um, because one of the questions yeah. for me with any recluse, yeah. whether it's Julian or later on with Emily Dickinson's yeah. decision yeah. to yeah. really not leave her father's mm -hmm. house and, yeah. and write, you know, nearly yeah. 1,800 poems is yeah. what – it, to what extent are they removing themselves deliberately from forces in the world that they see as a distraction or as something they want to get away from? Um, if, if Julian had been a nun, she would have been removed for the world, from the world already for quite a while. And I don't think they would have let her become a recluse unless she had lived in a community mm -hmm. under supervision for a while, but and as, in a contemplative community. Right. So she had to have a vocation for it. And I think more in her case, it was probably escaping to rather than escaping from. Had she been outside the walls of this church, not a nun, not an anchorite, um, she might not have gotten any education as a woman. That's quite the likely. Time. That's quite likely. And as a woman in this time... Um, she would probably have been married and had well, – Mar Marjorie mm -hmm. Kemp had 14 children before she decided to declare celibacy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Took her a while. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, 14 children mm -hmm. is a considerable toll on the body and the spirit. <laughs> right. I know there's so, a line yeah. in Emily Dickinson, yeah. one of her letters, where she says, God save me from what they call households yes. because I need the freedom yes. to write. Yes, so yes. in a sense, for, for women who yes. became these mystics yes. or right. anchorites, sometimes yeah. it is really literally providing a room of one's own. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and a chance at education. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a chance to 
to think connected thoughts, not constantly interrupted. And I think that must have been one of the appeals for Julian. The book that she's famous for, this Revelations of Divine Love, and and we'll sample some of that along the way, but um, what led her to write it? What kind of experience? When, as she tells us, when she was 30 and a half years old in May 1373, she had a series of visions. And I believe she mentions a couple of times that she wasn't initially uh, sure she should take them seriously. It happened at a time of serious illness, when even modern people have visions sometimes. Only mm-hmm. we don't call them visions. We, we say call delirious. Them, we call, yeah, we <laughs> call them delirium or... or mm-hmm. Although I think I'd also have visions if I was in a little cell for that Well, she long. wasn't in a cell yet. Oh, no, oh, this was before. Yes, this is probably before or about okay. the same time. But it, this, the, the visions could have prompted her enclosure or they could have been, you know, they could have happened soon after. But um, the visions were so arresting that I think her life was never the same again. And she started thinking about them. I mean, they were very vividly described in her early version of the book, which was written probably in the 1380s. It's almost entirely about the visions themselves and her initial responses to them. But then she spent 20 years plus thinking about their larger implications. And that the fruits of that became the longer book, which she says was written more than 20 years after 1373. And that, we think, is what she was probably working on much of the time in the anchor hold. And she must have been reading. She was probably talking with learned people who took her vision seriously and encouraged her to take them seriously and to work out exactly what they had meant. And can you tell us something about the language that she would have written in, which, you know, given that this is Chaucer's time and so on, we're talking Middle English. Yes, yes. Her language is much like Chaucer's. She writes better prose than Chaucer. Chaucer's prose is mostly translated from Latin, and it's big, complicated sentences that don't work very well in English. She was a prose writer who probably modeled her prose style after sermon style, so it's much more accessible and down-to-earth, and the sentences are shorter, And though she's not easy to punctuate. But she's writing in a dialect different from Chaucer's, although the form in which her book comes down has been normalized into the literary dialect of the time, which was Chaucer's dialect. Do we have any sense of who she was writing for? In other words, for her to write a book about her visions assumes that there would be an audience. Oh, absolutely. And who, absolutely. for her, do okay. you think, just yes. infer? <laughs> yes, yes. Was well, let, this for yeah. the yeah. clergy? Was no, it? no, no. Yeah, let me, let me read you a couple of passages yeah. about this. Her initial self-introduction in the shorter version starts out apologizing for the fact that she is a woman. God forbid, she says, that you should say or assume that I am a teacher, for that is not and never was my intention. For I am a woman, ignorant, weak, and frail. But I know very well that what I am saying I have received by the revelation of him who is the sovereign teacher. So her first but, you know, explaining why it's okay to, to, to write if she's, though she's a woman, is that she got this direct, directive directly from God. 
And it is truly love which moves me to tell it to you. For I want God to be known and my fellow Christians to prosper, as I hope to prosper myself by hating sin more and loving God more. And she uses this term, fellow Christians. It's actually even Christian in, in Middle English. And it can just mean neighbor as well as specifically Christians. But it makes it pretty broad. And then there's another but explaining why it's okay for her to write. Because I am a woman. Ought I therefore to believe that I should not tell you of the goodness of God when I saw at the same time that it is his will that it should be known? So suggesting how ridiculous Mm -hmm. it would be for her to be forbidden to speak of the goodness of God when God intends this. In her later version, 10 or 15 years later, however much later it was written, She leaves out this whole part about her gender and inadequacy, but she talks even more broadly about her readers. And this is what she says. I am not good because of the revelations, but only if I love God better. And inasmuch as you love God better, it is more to you than to me. I do not say this to those who are wise because they know it well, but I say it to those of you who are simple, to give you comfort and strength. Suggesting here she's writing to unlearned people Mm -hmm. who only knew English. For we are all one in love. For truly it was not revealed to me that God loves me better than the humblest soul who is in a state of grace. For I am sure that there are many who have never had revelations or visions, but only the common teaching of Holy Church, who love God better than I. If I pay special attention to myself, I am nothing at all. But in general, I am, I hope, in the unity of love with all my fellow Christians. For it is in this unity that the life of all men consists who will be saved. I think one thing she's saying there is that she wouldn't write just for an audience of nuns. Right. She's wiping out all the usual distinctions. Mm-hmm. You know, not just gender, but clerical status or celibacy or education, education, any of that. As she envisions Christianity, there is no class system, no hierarchy. This is really radical. Well, it is. And it's it's also kind of remarkable, even the earlier version where she's apologizing for being a woman, which is kind of a standard trope for women who are showing just how learned they are while apologizing for it. But after that, she then, in both of those versions, she's stressing love, that she's doing this to bring God's love and to share love. That's right. And And she wants, I think, to share it as broadly as possible. And when you start saying that this is what God told me to do, there there is a kind of... um, I'm not going to say bragging, but it, it means that you are accepting that you're a special being. That's right. That's right. So Except she, although she's saying it doesn't make her special. Still, only if she yes, gives it. Yes, only yes. if she shares yeah. it. Yeah, that's right. It is a remarkable yeah. um, tone for, for a, a woman at this time, especially— or for anybody. Yeah. For anybody, yeah. But at a time when, when women would not have been considered— to sort of be able to claim such no, such no. a role. No, in fact, if you had a, a model of the medieval English or medieval period church, it was a very strict hierarchy with the pope and the bishops at the top and then probably regular clergy, that would be the monks, but men rather than women, mm-hmm. and then the laity with men again outranking the women. 
and yeah, lifelong celibates having more status than married people. And she's just dissolving all of that. And from then on, every time she talks about Christians, her fellow Christians, and herself, she insists on the oneness of all who will be saved throughout the book. When she talks about the, the, the sin of Adam and Eve, there's no Eve. It's just Adam. When Adam fell, and Adam stands for everybody. And in the same way, Jesus stands for everybody, male and female, married and celibate. Yeah. I'm starting to wonder why she wasn't burned at the stake. But we'll talk, <laughs> we'll we'll talk, talk about more about Julian yes. of Norwich when we continue yes. in a moment with University of the Air. I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Sherry Reams. We were talking about medieval mystic and revolutionary figure, Juliana Norwich. She lived in the late 1300s into the 1400s, chose a life secluded from most of the world, and wrote what is considered to be the first book in English by a woman. You've already mentioned some of the ways that she was radical, um, this notion that she was addressing people without a hierarchy and sort of embracing all to receive God's love. What, what are some other ways that, she, that you see her as revolutionary or departing from what would have been the conventional church teachings? Okay. One of the clearest ways, and it comes fairly early in her book, is her insistence that God is not remote, unapproachable, and scary. You didn't need to approach God through channels by going to intermediaries, either clergy or saints, though she doesn't quite say it that bluntly. But she talks about how close God is to human beings in everyday life. One of the best passages is this one. For as the body is clad in the cloth, and the flesh in the skin, and the bones in the flesh, and the heart in the trunk, so are we, soul and body, clad and enclosed in the goodness of God. Yes, and more closely, for all these vanish and waste away. The goodness of God is always complete and closer to us beyond any comparison. So there's this notion, in this you see not only that she's insisting on the closeness of God, but also on the importance of the body as well as the soul. She's not going to downplay or denigrate the body in comparison with the soul any more than she's mm -hmm. going to downplay the laity in comparison with the clergy. But this, this insistence that God is with us at all times closer than our own skin. Mm. Um, and it, with a sort of tenderness also suggested yeah. about it. Uh, my students used to point out that this reminded them that she's living in a cell which she obviously did not regard as a prison. There's something very mm -hmm. tender and maternal about her image of God. It also reminds us maybe of a mother's womb, and she mm -hmm. will, in fact, be talking about Jesus as a mother. Well, yeah, and it just the almost you feel that she's wrapped in this yes. love or goodness. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah, With this amazing sense of security. And that's one thing that really stands out about Julian. 
her written voice, at least, is so peaceful, so calm, and really stands out quite extraordinarily um, against the nervousness of a Marjorie Camp, or for that matter, a Chaucer, who is mm-hmm. always kind of... Well, and it's so different yeah. than the sort of fire and brimstone, wrath and uh, damnation kind of voice that often theologians will use. Oh, and that theologians did in her mm-hmm. time, absolutely. Did she yeah. have any sense of God's presence, not just in this very... Um, inner way and, and personal way, but also in the world that she could see out the window or in the sort of the created she, world? She keeps in, she doesn't talk about the creation very much. So no flowers and birds no, and no, sun, sunlight. No, not, not that nature sort mm-hmm. of thing. And maybe that's not too surprising, no. living in a city and in a cell. Well, and but, at that time. Yeah, and either. at that time, yeah. yeah, at that time. But she does insist that as God is close to her, God is just as close to everybody. So, and for her, what does God exactly mean? I mean, because she's in the, the Roman Catholic tradition with the yes. Trinity and everything. Yes. Um, is it a God the Father figure? Is it the Old Testament God and then the New Testament Christ as two separate kinds of Not presences? really, no. no. As, as uh, I think you quoted at the very beginning of the, of the program, she insists on the oneness of the Trinity— and she's certainly not going to set an angry God the Father against a merciful God the Son the way Milton does. Mm-hmm. In fact, nothing like that. There's, there's a wonderful uh, – the continuation of the quotation that I think you started with. Our great Father, Almighty God, who is being, knows us and loves, loved us before time began. Out of this knowledge, in his most wonderful deep love, by the eternal counsel of all the blessed Trinity – He wanted the second person, that is Christ, to become our mother, our brother, and our savior. From this it follows that as truly as God is our father, so truly is God our mother. Our father wills, our mother works, our good Lord, the Holy Spirit, confirms. Now, where is she getting this? Because that's not the standard way to talk. That is not the standard way to talk. We don't know exactly where she gets it because she doesn't quote anybody. She's paraphrasing everything she has heard or read. Um, She's not the first person who ever talked about um, seeing Jesus as a mother. That starts, I think, with the Cistercian monks like Bernard of Clairvaux quite a while before Julian, and she may well have read them or been familiar with their works. We don't know if she read Latin or not. And where does the Virgin Mary fit into all this? The Virgin Mary, strangely, in her version, is kind of an emblem for the human race rather than a a saint high on a pedestal that none of us can be like. Um, One of the wonderful passages about the Virgin Mary is this one. She's asked God to show her the Virgin Mary. And what he shows her is the bliss and joy of this sweet maiden, his blessed mother. As if he said, Julian goes on, do you wish to see how I love her so that you could rejoice with me in the love which I have in her and she has in me? And for the greater understanding of these sweet words, our good Lord speaks in love to all mankind who will be saved, addressing them all as one person. 
as if he said, Do you wish to see in her how you are loved? It is for love of you that I have made her so exalted, so noble, so honorable, and this delights me, and I wish it to delight you. So extraordinarily closing of the distance between the Virgin Mary, you know, the greatest of all the saints, and ordinary people, just collapsing that. She's still, you know, she's important, but she's there as a symbol almost. And and Julian never suggests that you should pray to Mary because she'd be more receptive to your prayers than her son or than God the Father. She doesn't do any of that. She suggests that God has provided us with intermediaries for our convenience and our consolation, but he's very pleased if we pray directly to him. And we don't have to be afraid to pray directly to God. And with the God as father or mother and the sort yes. of gender right. confusion there. Yes. Or openness. Openness, um, yeah. What, wouldn't that have been made her books banned? Wouldn't that have no. made her... There was nothing um, heterodox about that, I think, at all. Because it had been, you know, the ideas. Mm-hmm. You, you could take it sort of metaphorically. And she, she, mean... she, takes it, she takes it further than, than most. No, that, that's not where she's on... on dangerous ground. Where she gets on dangerous ground is when she starts talking about sin and God's attitude towards sin and the punishments for sin or the non-punishments for sin. Well, let's talk about that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So the part that would have gotten her in in trouble had it been out there is... Yes. It It was already famous that Bernard of Clairvaux, a great saint, had talked about Jesus as a mother. She takes the metaphor farther, but she's a mystic. And mystics did poetic things, and this does not interfere with the discipline of the church. And does she relate her concept and the, the way of speaking about God as a sort of motherly figure, does she relate that to the visions that she had? Or is this just her own thinking? Like, what, what, it, what exactly does she claim to have seen? She did not see anything physical about showing... Christ as doing motherly things. It's all in the voice. It's in the attitude. It's in it's what she perceives that's astonishing about Christ. She starts out beholding a crucifix where he is in agony, bleeding and suffering and dying. And what she sees in the vision is that at the moment of death, he is suddenly delighted. And he tells her, I am so delighted to have suffered for you because I love you so much. If I could have suffered even more, I would have. And so she finds this astonishing um, love and care for human beings, which she takes to be, I think, the idea of the mother with the child. Mm -hmm. We are his children, his young, foolish, fallible children, and he is as fond of us and as tolerant of our frailties and follies as any mother with toddlers. And she really sort of depicts mm-hmm. him that way. And I think it starts out, she, she eventually really develops the theology and the, all the theory behind it. But I think it starts from that. How could he possibly be so delighted with us and not regard us as sinners when we know we're sinners? And I think it comes from this notion that he's... He's the mother. So at some point in her life, if we wanted to infer about her life, she's obviously been well acquainted with a good mother. Mm -hmm. 
has seen or felt good, that love. loving mothers yeah. found that kind of love. And she and could the, have found it in the convent with, with female mentors, too. But, but she has this and, very strong notion of motherly love. And motherly love is a kind of self-sacrificing one where yeah. you would give your yeah. all. And where you're happy to do it, which is harder for, mm-hmm. for ordinary mothers to do, but easy, she suggests, for Christ to do. So with the concept of sin, yes. what would have been the prevailing notion of sin at the time, and then where oh, did she depart from that? The prevailing notion was incredible. I mean, the, the example I always remember is Chaucer's parson. The parson is a hardliner on sin. And when he gives his sermon at the end of the Canterbury Tales, he not only goes into the seven deadly sins, which we know about, and there are many varieties of the seven deadly sins, and you can hardly ever avoid them because they include things like pride and envy and, you know, bad thoughts and bad motives and anger. Those are all deadly sins. But then the parson is such a hard liner that he says, we also have to worry about all the venial sins. And it's a venial sin any time that you love something in this world at all, and it takes that little fraction of your love away from God. The parson says it is a venial sin to enjoy sex. It is a venial sin to sleep more than your body requires. It is a venial sin to prepare your food more deliciously than (laughs) necessary. (laughs) So we are uh, constant, constant, constant sin. And the penitential system which was, you know, the sins, mm-hmm. you didn't always have a parish priest who was this much of a hardliner. But the penitential system said that you had to constantly monitor your spiritual state, to be constantly aware of any and all sins you had committed, to confess them orally to a priest, to be truly contrite for them, to feel genuine regret and remorse, and to do penance. And if you died without finishing the penance, you would be allowed to finish your punishment in purgatory, which was almost as bad as hell, but it had an end. (laughs) And if you hadn't confessed the sins, you were going to hell. And the belief was that the great majority of human beings, even those who had tried hard to be good Christians, were going to hell. Julian (laughs) doesn't see it that way. Here's just one lovely example. Though our Lord revealed to me that I should sin, by me is understood everyone. So here's this constant, you know, mm-hmm. your insistence, this is everybody. And in this I conceived a gentle fear. And in answer to this, our Lord said, I protect you very safely. No anger, no threats. This word was said with more love and assurance of protection for my soul than I can or may tell. For just as it was first revealed to me that I should sin, so was consolation revealed. Assurance of protection for all my fellow Christians. And she goes from there to her love for then all her fellow Christians because God loves them all as if they were all the same soul. So she's saying as one of these revelations that God said more or less don't worry about it. Yes, Yes, which is, this is putting her on somewhat tricky ground. He, she is here saying he loves all who will be saved. So then the key question becomes, who is the all who will be saved? How inclusive mm-hmm. is that category? Does it only include people who spend most of their lives meditating in a cell? Or is it 
much broader? Would it include people we would think of as, you know, much more serious sinners? And she is very careful about this. She never quite says that everybody is going to be saved. But listen to what she does say. She says, God has made everything that is made, and God loves everything that he has made. And he who has general love for all his fellow Christians in God has love toward everything that is. For in mankind which will be saved is comprehended all. That is to say, all that is made and the maker of all. And then she... Now that sounds pretty inclusive to me. Yes, in in the next paragraph, or in the next few sentences, she backtracks a little bit and says, I speak of those who will be saved. For at this time, God showed me no one else. But in everything I believe, as Holy Church preaches and teaches. So what she's saying here is, she's very carefully avoiding saying whether she thinks anyone will actually be damned. She just says, God hasn't yet confirmed that to her. He's Mm -hmm. only showed her the positive part. And of course, she wouldn't question church doctrine. In order to be persecuted for heresy, you had to have wrong ideas that you stubbornly adhered to. And if you refused to recant those wrong ideas in, you know, mm-hmm. in defiance of an order from the church, then you were a heretic. So she's very careful. She doesn't ever quite cross that line. But what she very clearly suggests, I think, is that as she sees it, there may very well be no hell or maybe only hell for fallen angels only hell for, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the extreme cases, not this huge threat that was being hung like a Damocles sword <laughs> over, over everybody in the church. Well, I suppose she covers things by, in effect, quoting God. Yes. You know, in other words, yeah. nobody can question if she's quoting from a vision. It is her vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's saying this is what God yes. said. And it's what God said. But had the church authorities come and said, you must have misunderstood God, she would have had to say, yes, I must have misunderstood. I must have misinterpreted that. It must not have applied. That, so far as we know, never happened. We don't know of any controversy surrounding what she wrote. Though, as Mm -hmm. as we'll get to, I think, she had a very um, select audience, as things turned out. She wanted a big audience, but I think it didn't happen. partly because the period in which she's writing was the big reaction against Wycliffe and his followers. And she's nothing like the Wycliffeites, but still, it's a time when the English church was very nervous about possibilities of heresy and was policing vernacular writings very, very strongly. One of the problems I would have thought she'd have in her theology, because she's trying to be so positive. Yes. So, you know, stressing the love and the goodness and the kindness and the nurturing qualities of God. How then does she explain the um, terrible tragedies that are out there in the world and also all the stories of a vengeful God and of punishment that are in the Bible? Did she just sort of gloss over those? She, She does not deal with current events 
So she doesn't talk about the fact that you can have young children dying no. for no, no good reason no. and you have to Well, somehow... no reason that we know. Yeah. No. No, she doesn't. She doesn't talk about that. She doesn't she doesn't try to talk about why bad things happen to good people. Yeah. Or, <laughs> right. Although, you know, her church would have said probably there are no good people. <laughs> right. But, but no, just... she doesn't get into that and she doesn't um And she doesn't have yeah. a strain anywhere in her writings of Oh, I guess that sort of that questioning of why the world is the way it is or how could a God let this? No, 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 no. What she says is that we all feel estranged from God because of our own sins. And so we don't understand. We we don't see God's love. We don't see that God is yearning to to comfort us. And, and I think she deals... She probably assumes that some of the suffering is just part of the part of, you know, the human condition. Does she accept sinning then? I mean, in other words, is there anywhere in her writing where she is suggesting that, yeah, you better avoid these um, deadly sins or? She certainly suggests that that um, if we love God the way we should, we would have no desire to commit those things. We want to, you know. So she she takes for granted, I think, that once we have understood the nature of God, we will be much, much less inclined to sin. But yeah, she's very optimistic about human nature. She doesn't try dealing with the discipline issue, which is, mm-hmm. you know, what the, presumably the reason that the church was insisting on the penitential system was to keep people in line. And you said she doesn't yeah. accept Eve as responsible for the fall? No. It's Adam. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Adam and Eve are, are one are one person, just as, I mean, in a way, they are in Milton, too. You know, the mm-hmm. way Milton portrays it, Adam is reason and, and Eve is, is will, and together, they have to sin together. But she doesn't even go into that. Adam is one, per, one is this emblem of, of all of human nature, just as Jesus will become the redeemed emblem of all of human nature. We're going to look at how Julian has managed to stay relevant, how she's uh, speaking to people in modern times, when we continue in a moment with University of the Year. from a 20th century setting of some of the words of Julian of Norwich by Sidney Carter. I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Sherry Reams. We are talking about a medieval mystic named Julian of Norwich who really changed the thinking about women, about God as a sort of motherly figure, and uh, the concept of sin through her writings and unusual life. 
So the writing that she did, this Revelations of Divine Love, where she was putting forth her visions and some of her ideas over the next two decades about them, who actually did read this in her own time? What we're sure about is that her work did not get the kind of wide distribution that she wanted when she talked about addressing simple readers as and, you know, sort of a very egalitarian reading public. Um, there are four medieval manuscripts that survive with her works. And actually, two of them shouldn't really be called medieval manuscripts. There, There is a um, manuscript anthology written together of putting to, put together about 1450 that includes the shorter version of her book and puts her together with some other medieval mystics. There is a an anthology put together about 1500 that puts together excerpts from her long book with other um, writings by mystics. Both of those are thought to have been put together by Carthusian monks. The Carthusians were the closest thing to hermit monks a whole order of hermits and nuns. But it's so she had an audience of safe readers, readers who were not going to get in trouble for heresy because they were safely enclosed and they certainly weren't out rabble rousing and they would be using English but not preaching to the public. Do you think her works were suppressed from a larger readership? I don't know. Mm-hmm. There are there's no sign of actual of you know any decrees against her and the, the, the works against heresy have been so so um, poured over by modern historians. But I think just her admirers knew that they had to keep her works kind of close and share them with people who could appreciate them and not misuse them, not misinterpret them, or take them too far. The 17th century manuscripts that survive are really very powerful witness, I think, to her importance later. Um, There are two surviving manuscripts of her complete book, both written in the 1600s in France by English Benedictine nuns who were in exile from England because there was no more monastic life in England after the Reformation. right, yeah. And... They very carefully and lovingly recopied this book in its medieval language, which can't have been easy for them to understand, just is an act of reverence, I think. But a lot these this, these copies suggest a lot about a continuing chain of manuscripts that had probably been handed down and read to death and you know recopied because the old ones fell apart and were th- and were thrown away. Well, and she did not become a saint. No. Well, there are no more saints being made after the Reformation. And in order to become a saint, she would have had to have miracles. Mm-hmm. We'd have to know a lot more about her life. So and that just visions wasn't, would not have been enough. Visions would not have been enough. Yeah. No, no. I've seen reference in many places to what is considered her most famous line, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and every kind of thing shall be well. Tell me about That's that right. line. And okay. why why is it yes. famous? And... Well, it's famous, I suppose, because it's the it's the it's brief, it's memorable, and it's so reassuring. Um and she meant it to be reassuring, though it didn't apply to, you know, everything in the world the way we might <laughs> we might nowadays assume. Um the context of it is sin and judgment. And here's the quote. 
when she wondered why God hadn't prevented sin. Jesus, she says, who in this vision informed me about everything needful to me, answered with these words and said, sin is necessary. And the Middle English word is actually behovely, which means possibly fitting or even good or opportune, not just necessary, but all shall be well and all shall be well. So don't worry too much about the consequences of sin. Because you need it. Because it's, it's fulfilling a function. It's fulfilling a function. Maybe because it makes the redemption necessary and important. Um, she struggles with this, trying to reconcile this message with church teachings, and says later, directly, one article of our faith is that many creatures will be damned, such as the angels who fell out of heaven because of pride who are now devils, and many men on earth who die out of the faith of the church, that is to say those are pagans, and many who have received baptism and still lead unchristian lives. All these will be eternally condemned to hell, as Holy Church teaches me to believe. And this being so, it seemed impossible to me that every kind of thing should be well as our Lord revealed at this time. And to this I had no other answer as a revelation from our Lord except this. What is impossible to you is not impossible to me. I shall preserve my word in everything, and I shall make everything well. So what it seems to be saying is that somehow God's justice will not demand the damnation of many or perhaps any people. That's but that's a, the context. Yeah. Not that cancer will be cured and there will be no floods and forest fires. And, <laughs> and what do you like make that? of the yeah. repetition, all shall be well and all shall be well? He was saying it twice. Um, just. I think just for, for emphasis. Just making sure. For emphasis. Everything shall be well. And that line was picked up by what, T.S. Oh, yes, that and... line is picked up all over the place. Yeah, let me go back just a little bit to the way that her writings have been rediscovered and interpreted. Her, Julian was almost completely unknown outside Roman Catholic circles until about 1900. There was one printed edition of her book in 1677, I believe, which called her Mother Juliana, sort of giving her an honorific as a nun and also turning her name into the feminine mm -hmm. form, and recommending her work specifically as a, saint, a saintly reading for devout Catholic women. So it's very gendered. Um, she's c completely ignored after that, I think, until um, Evelyn Underhill a famous writer on mysticism, includes her in the famous compendium called Mysticism in 1911, calling her Lady Julian, so again giving her sort of a female honorific, and describing her as simple and deeply human rather than profound, maybe still a little patronizing because of her sex. But then, in the 1930s, Charles Williams picks her up. He's a, he was at one point very well known. He was an Anglo-Catholic novelist and spiritual writer. Wrote some really strange and interesting novels. And he quotes that line, all should be well, at the end of um, a book which I believe is, is called War in Heaven, published about 1930. 
And also, Williams includes her in his anthologies of spiritual writing and ranks her as second only to Dante hmm. among medieval writers. So the gendering... That's high praise. Yes, that is very high praise. Yes. Um, it's from there, I think, from Williams that that T.S. Eliot picks her up and very famously quotes that line at the end of Four Quartets, a very climactic presentation of that. Um, and... Starting in, I think, the 1970s, she starts being studied in academic circles. Not English departments so much. Women's studies, for example? No, I think schools of theology Mm -hmm. to start with. Yeah. Um, The Anglican theologian Rowan Williams includes her in 1979 in his History of Christian Spirituality from the Christian from the New Testament to St. John of the Cross, calling her a great theological prophet. How is that? And Rowan Williams eventually became Archbishop of Canterbury, so he's a very important writer in the English church. Um, Her work starts being widely translated, I think, as a feminist work initially, and then later as as a work of, of theology, so there are lots of modern translations and adaptations and popularizations and, you know, all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff and spin-offs since the 70s. And a final question yeah. would be just a personal one. Yeah. What do you personally find the most inspiring about Julian? I love her attitude toward God and her faith. I don't think I, you know... I can't share all of it, but I think she's one of the most inspiring Christian writers because she suggests that some of the problems that we see in Christianity may just be the way it's historically been interpreted, that the, you know, all the problems of a vengeful God demanding a human sacrifice and all that stuff may not be an essential part of it at all. But, you know, historical construct that that we can get beyond or that isn't necessarily there. One of my students, when I first started teaching this, um, doing a graduate course at the university, said, I would be a Christian if it were like this. (laughs) You know, so in that sense, she's kind of like St. Francis of Assisi. You know, if Christianity were always like this, it wouldn't create so many barriers and so many hassles for people you know, trying to get their minds around what it's, you know, what what it consists of and what its demands are. And it certainly yeah. is a positive yeah. and soothing kind of message. Oh, yeah. My guest yeah. has been Sherry Reams. We've been talking about Julian of Norwich, revolutionary medieval mystic. I'm Emily Auerbach, and I hope you'll join me for the next hour of University of the Year. <laughs> ¶¶